Thank you for watching NTD Business. Coming up tonight, Snapchat under fire. It's a popular place for drug dealers to sell to children who sometimes overdose. Lawmakers discussing how to solve the problem. The U.S. economy posts strong growth in the fourth quarter, but signs point to a weak handover to 2023. Domestic demand rose at its slowest pace in two and a half years. California voters getting a chance to overturn a law to establish a government council to set wages for the fast food industry. Opponents argue the law will raise business costs and drive up food prices. And Chinese apps now hold the top positions in app rankings. How do they get there? And do they have data risks similar to TikTok? That are much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. A new wave of layoffs in response to the gloomy economic outlook. IBM is the latest tech giant to slash thousands of jobs. The company plans to eliminate 3,900 positions. It's about 1.5% of its global workforce. IBM announced the cuts Wednesday, saying they were related to the previously announced spin-off and sale of two business units. The move will cost IBM about $300 million this quarter. Other major tech companies are also downsizing. Today, German software group SAP said it plans to cut 3,000 jobs. That's about 2.5% of its global workforce. But it's not just tech companies. Layoffs now spreading to other industries. U.S. chemical and plastics manufacturer Dow is cutting about 2,000 jobs. It's 5% of its workforce. Dow says it shifted focus to cash generation in the fourth quarter and prioritizing higher value products where demand remained resilient. But it's a different story at Chipotle. The Mexican food chain is looking for more workers. It wants to hire 15,000 people before its busy season which is March through May. While the tech industry is laying people off, restaurants are still worried about not having enough workers to meet demand. Labor Department data shows the unemployment rate for restaurants is still lower than before the pandemic. Chipotle said it needs to keep hiring to back its aggressive growth plans. It wants to eventually double its number of stores to 7,000. That's up 17% from its previous target. The U.S. economy showed solid growth late last year, but recession fears still remain. The Commerce Department reported today a 2.9% GDP growth in the fourth quarter. This is lower, however, than the previous quarter by three-tenths of 1%. Consumer spending accounts for more than two-thirds of U.S. economic activity. It grew at 2.1%, also slower than the previous quarter. Half of the boost to growth in the fourth quarter came from a sharp rise in inventory held by businesses, though some of that inventory could be unwanted stock. But stripping out inventories, government spending and trade domestic demand only increased 0.2%. Most economists expect a recession by the second half of this year, but a mild one due to labor market strength. Joining me is Pete Earle, economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. So, Pete, let me ask you, U.S. Q4 GDP rose 2.9 percent, you know, pretty solid number, but somewhat a mixed picture within the report. How are you feeling about this? Right. So uh, the economy grew more than the prevailing estimates in the fourth quarter, but consumption of business investment are slowing. Uh, 
Um, so the Fed hikes, which started in May, uh, likely account for the loss of momentum. And uh, with those numbers being what they are, the estimates for overall 22 G GDP are 2.1 percent, which is about a third of economic growth in 2021. Okay, and you mentioned a, a loss of momentum. So consumer spending, right, lost, uh, just slowed a little bit compared to uh, the last quarter. And we know that uh, there is a lag as to the effects of the Federal Reserve's rate hikes. <laughs> so I wonder, do you worry that this this report could be the last quarter of, of a solid GDP growth? So consensus expectations are that GDP will decrease to about 1% in the first quarter of 2023. Um, from what the numbers are saying, the only factors that kept the brief recession in the middle of 2022 from continuing are consumption by consumers and consumption by the government, also a little bit trade. Um, consumers are facing higher bills because of inflation. Uh, their car payments and mortgage payments are higher because of the increase in interest rates. So they're, they're getting squeezed. And they're not going to be able to keep up these levels of consumption indefinitely. Uh, this stimulus payment, which accounted for about two or three trillion dollars of excess savings, is rapidly depleting. So I don't think consumers will be able to spend as much as they have been going into the early part of 2023. So if consumers aren't buying as much, uh, one would expect that businesses aren't making as much of a profit. So do you see more layoffs uh, coming this year? Well, we've already seen layoffs in high tech, and uh, if consumption slows, yes, I, we would see that the uh, the existing uh, um, layoffs and uh, and uh, uh, orders to uh, not hire or whatever uh, will expand to a more broader um, swath of industries. More, it'll increase to more sectors beyond uh, the high tech sector. So, in terms of layoffs, what's the scale that uh, you're expecting? Well, I would lean towards. Larger only because this is the the highest uh, or or the or the largest amount and the quickest the Fed has ever raised interest rates. They've gone from basically just above zero to five percent um, in uh, less than a year. So I think that uh, for an economy that's been used to growing and uh, to funding growth at you know less than one percent levels, uh, a shock for many of those industries is coming, and it might immediately take the form or in the short term take the form of uh, layoffs. And so back to the GDP is now obviously it's bad backward looking, right? So a, a recession is definitely on the table, but this 2.9 percent, uh, does this sort of give a kind of encouragement that if we do have a recession, it could be a mild one? What do you think? Well, if you look right now at certain money markets, they're saying that within five months, interest rates will be at about 5 percent. Uh, but that a year from now, they'll be back at 4% and two years from now at 3%. So either money markets think that there's a substantial slowdown coming or that the Fed will adopt a more inflationary bias uh, in order to keep growth running. Um, both of those could be true, but I think uh, those numbers seem to suggest that the market thinks that there's a pretty substantial recession coming. And does this report change anything in terms of what the Fed is going to do? I don't think so. I think the Fed is on track right now. Um, I think what will happen is they're going to raise rates to five, maybe 5.25 percent, and then wait to see what develops over the rest of the year. And a lot of that is going to hinge upon consumers and some of it on government spending as well. All right. Great. Thanks for your time today. Pete Earle, economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you. Great to be here. 
Americans are saving less this year due to high inflation and rising interest rates against a backdrop of economic uncertainty. A recent bank rate survey reports that a potential recession and layoffs could leave people unprepared for emergency expenses. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. According to bank rate survey, 57% of respondents said they currently can't afford a $1,000 emergency expense. Particularly concerning is the finding that 25% would put such an expense on a credit card. A high number of individuals, essentially a record number of individuals telling us that they intend to use credit cards if indeed they're socked with an emergency expense of $1,000 or more, occurring at a time when interest rates charged on that credit are the highest we have seen. Only 43% of respondents said they have enough savings to afford an emergency. 12% said they would curb spending. 11% would borrow the money from family or friends. 4% of those surveyed said they would take out a loan. Another 4% would resort to other means. Almost 70% of those surveyed said they're worried that a loss in income would make less than one month of living expenses unaffordable. I would say that when we see that most Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and that uh, has been the story in recent history, uh, that is quite concerning. And so if we have an event of uh, some magnitude that can adversely affect household finances, like a recession or even a rise in the unemployment rate, uh, that's where people really get stretched. And Younger Americans appear to be more worried about covering expenses in case of an interruption in income. The report found that 85% of Gen Z and 79% of Millennials are concerned. That's compared to 53% of baby boomers. Those who don't have the savings to cover an emergency should start saving today. And that means having a direct deposit to a dedicated savings account for that very pur purpose. For those who do have emergency savings, we would urge them to continue to fund that account. Hamrick says one of the main financial regrets people experience is the lack of these funds. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Meanwhile, more than a third of Americans rent their homes. Now, the Biden administration has announced a plan aiming to protect renters and help curb rental costs. It's called the Blueprint for a Renter's Bill of Rights. The Federal Housing Finance Agency will look into potential limits on rent increases. And at the same time, the Housing Department will work on rental assistance properties and public housing. The measures will propose giving tenants who miss a rent payment at those places 30 days notice before ending their leases. At least one National Housing Association has expressed reservations about the plan. The National Apartment Association says it's opposed to more federal government involvement in the landlord-tenants relationship. And a voter initiative has made it onto next year's California ballot. If passed, the measure would overturn a law aimed at raising wages and improving working conditions for more than a half million fast food workers. According to California's Secretary of State, the referendum raised more than 620,000 voter signatures, meaning it will appear on the state's November 5, 2024 election ballot. The law is the first of its kind in the U.S. passed last year. It would impact 550,000 workers. The rule establishes a council with the power to set minimum wages plus standards for hours and working conditions for California's fast food workers. 
Opponents argue that the law would drive up food prices for consumers and hurt business owners. A Sacramento court judge temporarily blocked it from taking effect last month. The measure would have raised wages to as much as $22 an hour by the end of this year. That's for chains like McDonald's and Starbucks that have 100 or more stores nationwide. California's current minimum wage for all workers is $15.5 an hour. On to Wall Street. It ended higher today. The Dow rose 206 points or six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained 44 points or 1.1 percent. The Nasdaq added 199 points or 1.8 percent. Fentanyl kills an estimated 200 Americans every single day. This was a statistic from yesterday's U.S. House Roundtable. The event talked about big tech's role in facilitating drug sales to children. At the roundtable, a mother, Amy Neville, shared the story of her son who overdosed on fake fentanyl-laced pills. Her son would use social media to meet with drug dealers, and he would ask dealers to directly come to their house for him to buy the drugs, and all this without his mother knowing. I was preparing to take my 14-year-old son, Alexander, to the orthodontist. I went to his room to wake him, and there he laid looking like he was just asleep on his beanbag chair, except he wasn't sleeping. Alex was dead. His father tried CPR, the paramedics tried naloxone, but it was too late. Alex had taken a pill he believed to be Oxycontin. Turned out that it was a counterfeit pill made with fentanyl. That fake pill had enough fentanyl in it to kill four people. We only had him 14 years. And now there appears to be a pattern emerging for some of these accidental fentanyl poisonings. Often, the purchaser is a teenager, and usually the teen had no intention of buying fentanyl in particular. They're usually looking for something recreational. And more often than not, the transaction happens on Snapchat. Attorney Kerry Goldberg filed a lawsuit against Snapchat's parent company, Snap, back in October. She represents nine families, eight of whom had children who passed away due to fentanyl overdoses. Goldberg says Snap's app design makes it rife with dangerous drug deals. She gives a number of reasons as to why this is. Number one, Snap's foundational product feature is disappearing messages, which draws in both minors interested in evading parental oversight, as well as drug dealers interested in dealing to vulnerable minors without detection. Number two, Snap is the only social media product that markets to children while also encouraging anonymity. Snap's geolocating feature makes child users findable to dealers passing through their locality. It's called Snap Maps. This self-destructing texts, the expiring posts, and the secure data vault enable dealers to, tr- to complete transactions without a trace. These design features are also a headache for law enforcement. It's very hard for law enforcement to get data from these tech companies. Sheriff John Knowles says he searches over 200 cell phones a year and he can't access 50% of them. He says there's a tremendous amount of evidence on phones and social media accounts he can't get access to. They pride themselves on the fact that they are not storing data. That's how they advertise themselves to users, is 
we're not gonna store the data, and if police come looking for it, we will not provide the data. And frequently, we are told when we serve processes to, to these providers is, the information is stored on servers that is not in the United States. Therefore, your subpoena, your warrant um, has no standing. Here's the thing though, Snap and other platforms are completely free of liability. The only thing it has to do is respond to subpoenas, but even then, many accuse Snap of being slow to respond to these subpoenas, if at all. Snap says it's determined to remove illegal drug sales from its platform. It says it's working with law enforcement and that it's investing in proactive detection. Also added educational features. Every time someone searches using drug-related words, these educational materials will pop up to teach about the dangers of drug use. We've reached out to Snap for comment, but it didn't respond before airtime. During the House roundtable, one key item was mentioned over and over, which was Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Section 230 makes social media platforms immune to liability for third-party content. For example, you can't sue Facebook because someone posted something illegal on Facebook. Facebook is not responsible for that person's actions. And likewise, under Section 230, Snap is not responsible for the drug dealers that use its platform. Many at the roundtable wanted to do something about Section 230 because it may prevent more overdose deaths. Attorney Kerry Goldberg, who is suing Snapchat for being dangerous, says Section 230 must be carved out. Section 230 disincentivizes the adoption of safety features on big tech platforms. The hubris of not believing that they're ever going to be held liable stops companies like Snap from adopting safety measures to keep people safer. They also never have to go through the discovery process in court. As a result, Snap can make all sorts of false claims about its data collection, the extent to which its data collection of children informs recommendations, algorithms, and it can just keep on creating the propaganda that it's a neutral tool. For more information, visit the Alexander Neville Foundation at anfhelp.org. Alex's mother, Amy Neville, set up the foundation to prevent other families from having the same experience she went through. We'll keep you updated on new developments of the story. Meanwhile, Chinese apps have moved to the top rankings in app stores. The tension is often on TikTok, but concerns about other Chinese apps go mostly unheard. NTD Sean Marshall takes a look at how these apps have become so popular and whether they have data risks similar to TikTok. The media is hyper-focused on the dangers of the app TikTok, which can make user data available to the Chinese Communist Party whenever they want it. But the other two of the top three apps, Xin and Timu, are also from Chinese-based companies. What is making these Chinese apps so popular? And should people be concerned about having those apps on their smartphones? You have to understand that every Chinese piece of technology and specifically the applications that they put out are weaponized applications to be used against you. I spoke with counterintelligence expert Casey Fleming on the subject. The Chinese apps that are put on our children's phones are all meant to be very ubiquitous and they follow the same addictive type of measure and it makes it fun and so on. TikTok followed Musical.ly. Musical.ly was uh, a music app that was put on phones and it was spread far and wide very quickly and then TikTok was just built on top of that. 
What are these apps doing differently that's making them so popular? They're a little bit more aggressive or assertive with the apps in, in that if you're looking at something and viewing something, they'll be able to push a notification to you. Are you still interested in this? And if you don't respond in a period of time, they may send you a text. The popular shopping app Timu has jumped into the number one spot in just five months of allowing users to team up with each other for group discounts. Timu, along with Sheen, have the advantage of offering cheap items made with cheap labor with lots of sales and discounts. And they use the same addictive endless scroll browsing found on TikTok and other popular social media apps. Retail shopping expert Janelle Alvarado filled me in on why people love these shopping apps. Well, the app Shein, that one is doing so well right now, not only because it has a model where it's consumer to manufacturer, so you're really getting product from the supplier, so then you don't have to pay that additional retail cost where you would have to pay if you had to purchase at a retail store. But some nations are taking a closer look at potential risks. And if you look at maybe something parallel, look at other countries. So it's not just a U.S. issue against Chinese companies. Look at what happened with India. India had about uh, 200 million TikTok users. They banned it completely. Why? Because of the same problems. They saw all of this mass data collection and they got nervous and they said, that's it, no more. Ultimately, the decision on whether to have these apps on your smartphone is up to each user in their judgment of risks versus rewards. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, Netflix saying no more password sharing if you're not in the same household. How is it cracking down? This tax season, expect surprises that could impact your wallet. What should you keep in mind when filing? One expert gives the do's and don'ts. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Netflix is cracking down on password sharing. In a letter to shareholders, the streaming giant said it will start blocking subscribers from sharing passwords with people outside their household in the coming months. And Netflix also plans to ro roll out a paid sharing plan. It piloted a similar program in Latin America where subscribers could add a sub-account for an additional $3 a month. Netflix says it realizes some people may cancel their subscriptions as a result, but it expects that borrower households activating their own accounts will counterbalance that revenue loss. Currently, Netflix allows multiple profiles under a single account, but the profiles are intended to be used by members of the same household. And the official tax filing season kicked off this week. And people filing their returns are already seeing significant changes this year. Here's some do's and don'ts to make your filing experience more smooth. This tax season, expect surprises that could impact your wallet. Several tax breaks have changed and the IRS has announced new upgrades. Every tax year, there's something new for people to deal with. Money coach Lynette Calfani-Cox has these five do's and don'ts to avoid surprises when filing your taxes this year. One do 
file electronically. You're going to get a faster refund check if you're owed. Two, this year there's no stimulus money headed your way, and there's been changes to certain tax credits, like the enhanced child tax credit, which was up to $3,600 per child and is now down to a maximum of $2,000. For a family that had two small kids, before they would have got $7,200. Now they're only going to get $4,000. Which leads to tip three. Don't expect a fat check from Uncle Sam. Last year, the average refund issued was $3,176. Experts say that's expected to be much lower this year. The fact that many people aren't going to get that big tax refund check that they had been anticipating is going to hurt a lot of families' budgets. Four, do get help filing, either from a professional or from the IRS. The IRS expects improved customer service this year. The agency says it's hired more than 5,000 people to take calls and added more in-person staff to support taxpayers. And five, don't procrastinate and file on time. This year, the official date to file returns by is Tuesday, April 18th. And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter, too. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. I'll see you tomorrow.